This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and I served 18 years, 18 years. in federal prison. You could not imagine how bad it was. Before Jeffrey Epstein became a sexual predator, he was allegedly a financial one. In your affidavit, you mentioned that you were offered the potential for a lesser sentence if you had talked to investigators about Epstein's role in all of this. Uh, why didn't you cooperate? I did. Stephen Hoffenberg says he knows better than anyone the way Jeffrey Epstein operated in business. That's because he says they conspired in a swindle that he took the fall for and he says Epstein got away with. There is no explanation in the world, none, for Jeffrey Epstein not to have been charged with me as a co-defendant. The evidence is enormous. It's black and white about what Epstein did with me. But no charges were focused at Jeffrey Epstein. None. Now, Hoffenberg is a convicted con man, but he says of Jeffrey Epstein. I call him a criminal mastermind. Throughout the decades, Jeffrey Epstein had maintained an aura of mystery. Nobody really knew who he was, but yet he had all of these rich and powerful friends. He was like an international man of mystery. Dissecting Epstein's life can be a challenge. Everything with Jeffrey Epstein is sort of surrounded in myth and mystery, which I believe is a lot of times of his own making. Following the money, even harder. I asked around and... No one had ever heard of this guy. And for the next 15, 16 years, I kept on asking that one question. Who is Epstein? And what is Jeffrey Epstein doing for a living? If you look at Epstein's life, it feels a little bit like a rags-to-riches story. But there's still a lot missing from it. There's a lot of mystery. Just who was he? That depends on who you ask. He said, well, I made all my money inventing a non-invasive liposuction machine. He told me he was in business. He didn't say anything specific. I was told that he was like a brain surgeon. But understanding Epstein's financial rise is critical to understanding how he was able to slip through the cracks for as long as he did. He was connected. He let people know how connected he was and how powerful he was. He has financial victims and he has sexual victims. That's why I called him a super predator. I'm Mark Remillard, and today on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. What we know about Jeffrey Epstein's meteoric climb from a boy in Brooklyn to financial advisor to the world's top 0.01%. Chapter 3, Man of Mystery. Standing right here on 37th Street and Neptune Avenue, uh, and this is one of the main entrances for Seagate, and the whole area on 37th Street is lined with uh, chain-link fence and barbed wiring. Jeffrey Epstein was born January 20th, 1953, and he grew up here, Seagate, New York, 
one of the few gated communities in New York City. In the summertime, this would be a really nice place to live. I mean, you are very close to the, the boardwalk, Coney Island and the amusement parks, the roller coaster rides. You're right near the beach. Seagate sits in the shadow of Coney Island on a chunk of land that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean at the lower end of New York Harbor. Back in the early 50s and 60s, it was a lower middle class neighborhood made up of mostly working Jewish families. So this is the gate coming up here. I'm joined by Philip Messing, a former New York Post reporter who covered crime in New York for over 30 years. It's got to be 35 years since I've been in Seagate. Really? Yeah. So I'm thinking Maple was up the head to the right. right. Yeah. He also grew up in Coney Island, just not behind the fences of Seagate. There's something nice about being in a gated community, I suppose, you know? Yeah, certainly. What made Seagate somewhat unique is that there was a somewhat small-town, bucolic air to it. And, you know, you could really see a palpable difference between the uh, hard-scrabble streets of Coney Island and the uh, sort of the less dangerous and more pristine area of Seagate. In tapes provided to ABC News by journalist David Bank. January 23rd of three. Epstein in 2003 described the fences of Seagate as a demarcation line. You can hear his thick Brooklyn accent when he speaks. Yeah, it was a place called Seagate, actually, which was separate from Coney Island, but separated by a fence. Epstein also had a younger brother named Mark, and the family lived in a multi-family home on Maple Avenue, a far cry from the multi-story mansions he'd later occupy. So we're pulling up on uh, Maple Avenue right now, and this, coming up here on the home, this is this white house right here with a big porch in the front. This was his childhood home. Park here, guys. According to former neighbors, the family was well-liked. They were working class and didn't have much. But Epstein says in his household, education was the most important thing. Decades ago, in the 1950s and 60s, Seagate and Coney Island were much different than today. In the 1960s, to many people, Coney Island was like cotton candy, suntan oil, and a leisurely stroll on the boardwalk. But to those of us who lived here year long, it was a little more intimidating and a little bit more dangerous because there were people that really wanted to do you harm on any given occasion. Philip not only grew up in Coney Island, he also went to junior high with Epstein from 1964 to 1966. Today, the school is called the Mark Twain Intermediate School for the Gifted and Talented, though it wasn't called that back in the 1960s. The kids then knew it as PS 239. Does it look about the same as it did uh, 40, 50 years ago? Yeah, it looks a little, uh, not quite as intimidating as when I went here, but it's the same school. In Coney Island, if you wore a tie, it gave the other kids in the street something to grab hold of when they try to drag you from one box to another. You know, you would almost have to bring your own lunch money and lunch money for somebody else who might want to rob you on any given day. 
For two years, Philip had all the same classes as Epstein, and they both skipped the eighth grade. I was in two grades. I was in the seventh grade class with him, and I was later in the ninth grade class with him. Philip remembers Epstein as a bigger kid who didn't really fit into any of the stereotypical middle school cliques. My recollection of, of Epstein was that he was a bit her suit, which is a fancy way of saying that it looked like he needed a shave when he was about uh, 13. You know, he seemed to have a perpetual uh, five o'clock shadow. A lot of the kids in the neighborhood were good athletes. They were uh, some of the kids were uh, very, very good comedians, and some of the kids were really tough. He didn't fall into any of those um, under any of those umbrellas. He was just sort of a standalone guy that just occupied a seat. Epstein would say he had three main interests growing up: music, mathematics, and physics. I wanted to know how people, how things were communicated, things were communicated, not only ideas, maybe, maybe it's emotions, and how things worked. Jeffrey sat behind me in class, which may explain why my math scores weren't as good as uh, as his, you know, because I couldn't cheat on his paper. No, you were a math with in school? I was always very good at mathematics. What, what, what made you interested? It was solving puzzles. It's a strange feeling when you get the right answer to a puzzle. Former schoolmates have told various media outlets that they remember Epstein on the math team in school. But like Philip, few have memories of Epstein, the person. He seemed to fly under the radar. He seemed even more bored than the rest of the, the rest of the 13-year-olds in the class. But he clearly impressed me and other classmates that I spoke to as being um, a little too cool for school. I wanted to know why I had to learn certain things. That doesn't seem very unusual. Yeah. But I refused to sort of take notes. If I remembered the material, I didn't see any reason you had to have a notebook, for You know, some kids, you said, even then, you might say this kid is headed for trouble or this kid's going to be a CEO someday. You never got uh, an indication, uh, even a scintilla of a, uh, of a hint that Jeffrey Epstein was going to do something uh, nefarious or that he was going to do something grand and wonderful. He was just another kid that was trying to get through seventh grade. It's no short drive or subway ride from Seagate to Manhattan, where Epstein would attend college in the early 1970s. Epstein took college courses at Cooper Union and NYU. That's ABC's chief business reporter, Rebecca Jarvis, host of the ABC podcast, The Dropout. For somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, coming from this working class background where his parents said education is the key, it's the exit to the life that you were born into, these would have been two of the most elite, prestigious institutions that you could find yourself in. Epstein would never graduate college, however, dropping out after just a few years. But his days in education weren't over, as in 1974, he'd come to land a job at one of the most Tony private schools in New York. He drops out of college and finds himself as a math teacher and a physics teacher at Dalton. Dalton is one of the most elite, prestigious college prep schools in New York City. The who's who of New York City send their children here, investment bankers, artists, people of means send their children to Dalton. As Epstein's own attorneys would later write in letters to prosecutors, it became a, quote, life-altering event. It might be a stretch to think about somebody coming from Epstein's background 
not finishing college, and then ending up at one of the most exclusive schools in New York City. It's definitely one of those situations where you would imagine his childhood was a very different thing than the children in the classrooms he was teaching. Epstein was hired by then-headmaster Donald Barr, the late father of Attorney General William Barr. It's not clear what Barr saw in Epstein, but at just 21 years old, Epstein would begin teaching the children of some of the city's wealthiest and most powerful people. Here I am when I was in Jeff Epstein's class and trying to navigate high school. Eve Olson was a student of Epstein's. Jeffrey Epstein was my math teacher for the two years he was at Dalton. I had him in eighth and ninth grade. Back then, she was Eve Lubin Scheuer, and she came from an affluent family living on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The school certainly catered to the children of privilege, and it still does. Today, sending your kindergartner there will run you $50,000. There was tremendous money, so there's a lot of designer clothing that were coming into the school. And uh, I literally cut the labels out of my clothes at Dalton in sixth grade so no one would know where I'd shop for them. And the Tony Prep School had a proven path of success for students. Typically, one-third of the student class ends up at an Ivy League school. The big chunk of my class, I think lots of them went to Harvard, Yale. There was a couple who went to MIT. It was hardly the kind of school that Epstein fit into. He was not only very young to be a teacher there, but he was also far from being old money like many of the students he taught. I knew that he grew up in Brooklyn. If he mentioned Coney Island, that would mean nothing to a girl who grew up on Central Park West and Park Avenue. Sorry. I knew that his father didn't have much. I knew that his mother didn't have much. I knew he was a freak of nature for how bright he was. And Epstein, being an outsider at Dalton on Manhattan's Upper East Side, was very evident every time he opened his mouth. Thinking one of my journalists, I said, he'd be a superstar if he just took elocution lessons. He needed the elocution lessons because he had that Brooklyn accent. And it's tough in New York to have that accent because you're never part of the inset. Epstein could not hide his Coney Island upbringing, and he carried it with him in his harsh New York accent. But around Dalton, you didn't need to hear Epstein to know that he was different from the other teachers. He came to the school in the heart of the 1970s. Disco was on the rise, and it showed. We were all going dancing. Everybody was doing the line dance and the hustle. When Jeff came to the school, he's a Tony Monero, like Saturday Night Fever, of the Dalton school teaching system. Epstein was at Dalton a few years before Saturday Night Fever actually came out, but you get the picture. He had a crop of dark, curly hair, sideburns that came down well below his ears, and he was often seen around Dalton wearing wide collars and the loud, flashy clothing of the 1970s. He came in in his pastel polyester suits and his hairy chest with thick gold chains, not a little one like this. I mean, I don't mean to sound snobby, but I mean, you know, what can I say? It was not a polyester thing. That was in the movies. That wasn't what the Park Avenue and Central Park West mamas wore. But I felt that he wanted to be part of that world. And he either are or you aren't. But Epstein's youth and fashion sense seemed to endear him to students like Eve. There are very few teachers I remember from that time because he was a favorite and really special. He was extremely supportive. Eve saw Epstein as charming, charismatic, and smart. 
And it wasn't just students who thought that. Some of their parents saw him that way too. As a teacher at Dalton, Epstein had access to some of the city's most wealthy and influential people, and he took advantage of that. I really like the children. I spent time with talking to the children. I spent time talking to the parents. So it wasn't the idea that I was going to a job. I was going to a sort of very large family. Met the parents, and he was so personable and so charismatic. We all liked his classes. So everybody went home with a glowing report about him. Then it wouldn't be so hard for him to impress somebody. Epstein would come in contact with a lot of important people, but in his life and career, none would be more important than Alan Ace Greenberg, the then CEO of Bear Stearns. Epstein would tell journalist David Bank that he met Greenberg through the parent of a student at Dalton. Epstein says he was invited to an art show and while he was there, he spoke with one of the Dalton parents. And a father of another student said, why are you in that picture? I understand all the kids like you, but you seem to be bright. The man says to Epstein, you're bright. You should work on Wall Street. I said, I never thought about it. And he said, I'd like you to call my friend Ace Greenberg, who works on Wall Street. And Epstein would give Greenberg a call soon after. I said, hello. And he said, I know who you are. Come to my office tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. He says he shows up the next day in a turtleneck. His hair was long. And he says Greenberg asks him two questions. Does he know anything about stocks and bonds or stock options? Two things Epstein says he'd never heard of. Again, at that point in time, I'm saying no to the two first questions in finance. Right. Uh, and he said, well, I understand you're very good at mathematics. I said, Yes. A stock option is the option to buy or sell an item at a specific price in the future. You're betting either that the price of something in the future is going to go up or going to go down. And based on what your bet is, you're hoping to get a deal based on purchasing the option. Epstein appears to hit Wall Street at the right time. In the 1970s, stock options were a burgeoning frontier in finance. And according to Epstein... Bear Stearns was looking for a math whiz. And he's hired at a time, 1973, when options are just becoming a business. This is completely ubiquitous on Wall Street today. But in 1973, it was a brand new field. And all of a sudden, this is a business. And it's a business that works best with great mathematical minds. And that's exactly what Epstein brings to the table. He said, would you like to work here? This, this was the entire conversation. He said, excuse me? And he said, in what is now, I realize that this is normal way, but not so elegant at the time. He said, well, if you're so smart, don't you understand English? Epstein says Greenberg offered him a job as a trader's assistant and says he notified Dalton in 1976 that he was leaving. But this is where others have presented a much less flattering version of events. If Epstein is to be believed... His aptitude for math carried him to Wall Street, and he decided to take a better opportunity over teaching at Dalton. But the headmaster who temporarily took over the school after Donald Barr told the New York Times that Epstein didn't depart Dalton on his own. He says Epstein was dismissed. According to the headmaster at the time, Peter Branch, he was asked to resign due to his poor teaching performance. This is ABC News contributor Tom Volshow, 
a criminologist and associate professor at City University of New York, who has studied Epstein, his life and crimes for years. The headmaster uh, took a recommendation from the math and science faculty that he should be asked to resign because his teaching was not improving over the prior year. He wasn't implementing any of the recommendations. And was taking a job at Bear really a better opportunity? It would no doubt prove to be. But at the time, there was no question that Epstein was starting at the bottom. He started out there as an assistant to a trader on the um, stock exchange. That is truly one of the lowest level roles you can have. You're photocopying, getting coffee. When Epstein started working at Bear Stearns in 1976, Wall Street was not the place that it is today. My name is William D. Cohen. I'm the author of House of Cards, a tale of hubris and wretched excess on Wall Street about the collapse of Bear Stearns. And I worked on Wall Street from... 1987 to 2004. Cohan's book examines the now infamous Bear Stearns, the once scrappy investment bank on Wall Street that turned into a key player in the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. Essentially, there was a, you know, a dead body on the ground, and it was my job to figure out how it got there. Wall Street is a dangerous place. People forget that. 1975, New York City basically went bankrupt. Crime rate was high. It was the, the gritty years, right? And Wall Street was far from the high-flying, drug-fueled cash grab that it's portrayed to be in the movies. I mean, I think when you know, Epstein got to Bear Stearns in the late 1970s, it was a sleepy time on Wall Street. Bear Stearns it was sort of an outsider firm. They were struggling to get by and not doing a whole lot. And, uh, and so it attracted kind of a scrappy, pull-you-up-from-your-bootstraps kind of guy. That's sort of the DNA of the firm. Bear Stearns' offices also didn't scream world-class investment bank either. It was sort of like a rabbit warrens den. I mean, you'd go in there, people had very small offices, kind of claustrophobic and garish. And then you'd go in there and you'd just say, God, I don't even know if I can physically work in here. But in those small offices was the larger-than-life Ace Greenberg. Completely bald, little guy, but just like full of personality, just huge personality, very gregarious, very engaging, very charming. Alan Greenberg got his nickname Ace from being a champion bridge player, and he always had a deck of cards in his desk. He enjoyed magic, and he'd often do tricks around the office. It's also said that he would sling a yo-yo around. And as unconventional as he was, so too were the employees that he hired. He was said to look for recruits with one thing— PSD degrees. Poor, smart, with a deep desire to become rich. And that was the kind of people that he wanted to hire. The concept of a PSD degree became one of Greenberg's trademarks. The acronym is all over internal company memos. You didn't need an MBA to work at Bear Stearns. You didn't have to go to uh, an Ivy League school. You didn't have to come from a good background. You just sort of had to present yourself as hungry, aggressive, scrappy, that was sort of the, the logic. Don't give me your patrician entitled uh, sons of the rich and famous. I'm not interested in that. And with Epstein being a Brooklyn-born college dropout turned math teacher, he would seem to fit that mold. And ultimately, Alan Greenberg loved the fact that Epstein was this scrappy, hungry individual, and he hired him to come work at Bear Stearns. Epstein started as a trader's assistant, but he doesn't appear to stay there long. 
Epstein claims he was able to bounce through multiple departments at the firm. He wanted me to learn each area of the business. So he thought the best place for me to start would be on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. In a 2009 deposition as part of later civil lawsuits against Epstein, his brother Mark says he believes Epstein was brought on to set up Bear Stearns' options department, and Epstein told journalist David Bank a similar story. I started to develop was option trading strategies based on mathematical formulas. The way I saw it was physics, which was in fact based on a fixed number of rules. And you did experiments in physics that couldn't violate those rules. And if your experiment worked, you hit the target. Commands seem to be different metaphors for the same processes, but when you hit your target, you were able to fly first class carrots. But in all of Bill Cohan's research of Bear Stearns... Nobody's given me a good explanation of what he really did. You know, I've you know, obviously written a book about Bear Stearns. His name never came up, ever. None of the people I interviewed uh, at Bear Stearns had any recollection or memory of any note whatsoever about Jeffrey Epstein. But what is clear about Epstein's time at Bear Stearns is that he rises quickly. In a matter of four years, he was named limited partner, which gave him essentially access to a gigantic bonus pool. Something Bill Cohan finds bewildering. Wall Street is an apprenticeship business, okay? It takes seven, eight, nine, ten years to get to these positions, to go from the bottom to the top. I don't know what the hell they were doing by making him a limited partner. He was never on a track that would be a normal track inside an investment bank. And just like Dalton, Epstein's departure from Bear Stearns after just five years would also be a source of debate. Epstein would claim he left Bear to start his own company. I, I need to know freedom. Freedom to travel, freedom to explore. Again, follow my curiosity wherever it took. Epstein says his plan was to handle the personal financial lives of the world's most exclusive financial clients, billionaires. If you had a lot of money, the last thing in the world, it seems to me, was that you should worry about your money. But his departure, coming shortly after becoming a limited partner... 1981, where you would imagine Epstein would be sort of basking in the glow of his new limited partner deal, instead he abruptly leaves and it's under a cloud of mystery, unclear what really went down, but but it does seem that there's some controversy there. In 2003, Vanity Fair reported that Epstein was questioned in an insider trading investigation in 1981, though it says Epstein told regulators that he left Bear Stearns over a policy violation for loaning money to a childhood friend to make some stock purchases. Something strange happened because he was a limited partner, and from there it would make sense to stay until he became a real partner, and so it's unclear why he would suddenly leave after having that huge promotion. But whatever the real reason that Epstein left Bear Stearns after five years, one thing is clear, that he didn't walk out the door with the kind of cash he'd one day have to buy private jets and his own private island. When, if you were working at Bear Stearns in the 1970s or early 80s, do you have any idea like what someone like that would be? Are we talking about I mean, someone who's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year? Are they making Are million? you kidding me? I mean, uh, no. You got to understand, in the 1970s, a big Park Avenue apartment cost 
So by the 70s, you know, you were probably making 50000 a year if you were good. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein, I can't... I mean, if he was making 15000 20000 a year, that's probably a lot. So if that's the case, where did all his money come from? Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. When Epstein leaves Bear Stearns in 1981, he sets out on his own, supposedly to handle and grow the money of the world's wealthiest people. As his attorneys would later put it, he set out to solve the, quote, unique family and financial problems of the hyper-rich. I understand that Jeffrey could figure out a way to make me another 20% return. And I was going to see this problem of saying, well, I have 12 people who are handling my money. But frankly, I really don't understand this stuff. To some extent, I heard about the need before I sort of came up with, with this idea of, I would give the advice of right. But between 1981 and the late 1980s, as Epstein is running his own consulting firm, whether he was having any success or not isn't clear. Author Bill Cohan says that if Epstein had found some new strategy for investing or making money for his clients, it wouldn't have remained a secret for long. If Jeffrey Epstein were doing anything miraculous, he would have been uh, uh, unwound would have been discovered if there was some secret sauce that he was using or spreading around. We would all have known about it. Epstein had always been secretive about his clients, and while he claimed that billionaires were calling him for advice, he appears to switch gears after a few years. I was the CEO of Towers Financial Corporation. This is Stephen Hoffenberg, who hired Jeffrey Epstein in 1987. I am a former principal, associate, partner of Jeffrey Epstein's, and I've spent years with him. I understand him greater probably than most others based on my history with him. 
And it was started in the 70s. We grew into, sadly to report, a criminal enterprise. Before Jeffrey Epstein arrives on the scene, Towers Financial is this company run by Stephen Hoffenberg. It's a repo company. They're basically bill collectors. If there's a big debt owed to a um, hospital or an insurance provider, they'll go out, they'll buy that debt and then try and collect it from the people who owe it. It was in New York City in the 1980s at the Towers Financial Headquarters at 417 Fifth Avenue is when I met Jeffrey Epstein. They describe him as the Ralph Lauren look, rugged, manly, sharp, a lot of swagger, very sophisticated. Jeffrey Epstein had come to know an associate of Hoffenberg's, who Hoffenberg says recommended him. A good friend of mine said to me, we have an executive on board, an American from New York, named Jeffrey Epstein. Hoffenberg says at the time, Epstein was struggling financially. The meeting of Jeffrey Epstein was unusual. Number one, Jeffrey Epstein was broke, couldn't pay his bills, and came to us humbly looking for employment and asking for opportunity. There were clouds, but Towers Financial was having its own problems with the Securities Exchange Commission. Hoffenberg, though, says he was impressed by Epstein. He says he saw talent in him. And we saw in Jeffrey Epstein this magnificent personality and this tremendous Wall Street salesmanship. He was charming. He's charismatic, very funny. He's lovable, totally lovable, and very unusually smart. Knew what he was dealing with all the time and had the ability to see Wall Street turns up and down and the way to make money on Wall Street. So Hoppenberg brings Epstein on board as a consultant, reportedly setting him up in an office. And as court records would later show, he paid Epstein a consulting fee of $25,000 a month. There were a team of people on Wall Street involved in Towers Financial, a large team. But Epstein and I ran it. Epstein goes from operating out of his one-bedroom bachelor apartment to then and now one of the most sought-after addresses in Manhattan. You know, a large office overlooking a famous restaurant in a courtyard in midtown Manhattan on Madison Avenue. That is ABC News contributor Roddy Boyd, a financial investigative reporter and the founder of the Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation. Life had to be looking pretty good for him at that point. Hoffenberg says during this time, he and Epstein got to know each other quite well. We worked together seven days a week. We traveled the world together, and we got to know each other's thinking, methods, ways, and lifestyle. You know, Vanity Fair said that you were Epstein's real mentor. Is that true? Yes. As one of their first acts together at Towers... Hoffenberg alleges in an affidavit that he and Epstein took over two insurance companies. So 1987, Hoffenberg and Epstein acquired these two failing Illinois insurance companies, United Fire and Associated Life. And the thinking there goes, we're not trying to get into the insurance business. So why would they want to acquire insurance companies if they had no intention of running them? Well, insurance companies are legally required to have a lot of cash on hand just in case they have to pay claims. They use these two insurance companies as their cash pile. 
And let's be clear here. This is totally illegal. They envision themselves, Epstein and Hoffenberg, as these corporate raiders who are going to go in, acquire the companies, and then they start thinking about ways of using that cash pile to go out and raid and acquire new companies. And Hoffenberg says they set their sights on acquiring an iconic airline. If you are flying in style with class, you are flying Pan Am. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're now at cruising altitude, 35,000 feet. Pan American Airways, one of the iconic American travel brands of the 50s, 60s, 70s. By the 1980s, this once premier world airline, Pan Am, has fallen on hard times. And Hoffenberg and Epstein think, huh, that would be a great target for us to raid. So they offer millions of dollars in bonds from United Diversified to buy Pan Am. The money was being used from the insurance companies and from Towers Financial in the approach to take over Pan American Airways. It was the height of the decade of greed, the 1980s. And to hear that Stephen Hoppenberg and Jeffrey Epstein were trying to take over an airline, it's hard not to think of one of the most iconic movies of that era. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. It's reminiscent of the movie Wall Street, where the slick Gordon Gecko attempts a hostile takeover of a failing airline. What the hell do you want? I just found out about the garage sale down at Blue Star. In real life, the tower's takeover bid for Pan Am would fail. And Hoffenberg states in his affidavit that it resulted in, quote, overwhelming losses for the insurance companies as well as Towers investors. And according to Hoffenberg, that left Towers swimming in debt. But he says the scheming didn't stop. Instead of closing up shop, they double down. They start selling these worthless bonds to investors in order to pay their previous investors. And that's the hallmark of a Ponzi scheme. You continuously sell something worthless, essentially, in order to pay your previous investors and keep making money for yourself. But before the scheme would unravel, Hoffenberg says he and Epstein reaped the benefits. Towers Financial which is a publicly traded company, were using investors' new money to pay investors' old money back. That's the traditional scope of a Ponzi scheme, and that's what occurred. And Hoffenberg claims that it's through Towers that Epstein gets his first real taste of wealth. Jeffrey Epstein, in the scheme, was earning millions of dollars for himself to benefit from the disadvantaging of the insurance companies and the people at Towers Financial. And that's how he became rich. While still employed by Towers in 1988, Epstein incorporated J. Epstein and Company in New York, which would later become Epstein's public explanation for his wealth that he was a successful financial advisor. He'd later renamed that company the Financial Trust Company. Havenberg says that when Epstein came to him, he was living in a one-bedroom apartment. But by the time he leaves, he's living a much different, considerably wealthier lifestyle. And Havenberg says that Epstein makes a little money through this tower financial scheme 
goes off and uses that money to seed his next venture. The money for these acquisitions, for this expensive lifestyle, came from Towers Financial. He became a millionaire only because of Towers Financial. There's no question that that was the seed money for the financial trust company. Towers Financial would collapse as a Ponzi scheme in 1993. It was in February that year when the SEC filed a suit against Hoffenberg, the company, and some of its other executives. In 1993, the SEC files a lawsuit against Hoffenberg, and this is the beginning of the end for him. It is, at the time, one of the biggest Ponzi schemes of our time, and this is, of course, before Bernie Madoff. While Hoffenberg says that Epstein was the mastermind of the scheme, Epstein had left the company before it collapsed, and it was Hoffenberg who would end up pleading guilty to charges of securities fraud. I pled guilty in 95. I was sentenced in 97. Hoffenberg is convicted, and he ends up spending nearly 20 years in federal prison. Hoffenberg would also be ordered to pay restitution of more than $450 million back to the victims. Epstein, however, was never charged in the matter. You know, how does Epstein walk from this? I, I don't have an answer. It looks 25 years on that some combination of luck, good lawyering, and prosecutorial oversight, you know, led to, to Epstein somehow getting, getting away without even a fine that we can discern. In tapes provided to ABC News, we're hearing Epstein's account of what happened. He tells journalist David Bank in 2003 that he did consult Hoffenberg on the takeover of Pan Am. And all these people came. I said, we think this is a great idea. I'm not sure, look, with hindsight, if I could have done any better due diligence than I did. But I advised him and the group on what I thought the strategy could be to take over the company. But Epstein claims he didn't know about Towers and Hoffenberg's fraudulent activity until the company's collapse. And in that 2003 interview, Epstein throws Hoffenberg under the bus. Uh, it turned out that he was a fraud. So that was a mistake in terms of someone I, I was associated with to some extent. But was there allegations of fraud he had done Pan Am? Just the fact that the, the money that he had claimed he had in fact had paid everyone. Including me. Yeah. Uh, it turned out to be money that was taken from other insurance companies. He got 20 years in jail. Ah, uh, 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 forgive my laughing, but there is no explanation in the world, none, for Jeffrey Epstein not to have been charged with me as a co-defendant. Hoffenberg, however, doesn't buy the babe in the woods routine, and he says Epstein should have been standing right beside him when the handcuffs were slapped on. And Jeffrey Epstein participated in lockstep with everything that was part of the criminal enterprise at Towers Financial. Epstein walks from this disaster. Epstein, to the best of our knowledge at this point, doesn't have any personal liability in this, and he doesn't have to forfeit anything. He certainly doesn't spend a second in jail. He definitely comes out of this in much, much better shape than when he went in, which I, I'm very confident in saying he's the only person to have been anywhere near Towers Financial that could say he came out in better shape.
By the early 1990s, with towers behind him, Epstein's days of being penniless were over. He starts having this vast change in his lifestyle that involves a uh, renting the former Iranian consul general residence on uh, 69th Street at 15000 a month, palatial, beautiful home. He also purchases his estate in Palm Beach in 1990. He also, in 1991, hires a private pilot. He hires a butler to work full-time for him, a house manager. So all this stuff seems to happen in that three-year period, 1990, 91, and 92. Even though you have everything crumbling around him with Towers Financial, he finds his way into the inner circle of the billionaire behind Victoria's Secret. Next time on Truth and Lies, we travel to Ohio to find out how Epstein intersected with one of the country's wealthiest businessmen and how he'd quickly take control of a multi-billion dollar fortune. The biggest issues is if you have too much money, most likely you won't miss it if some is taken from you. You know, Epstein created his own mythology that he only wanted to work with uh, billionaires. And here was an actual billionaire. The idea that this person who has limited experience, no college education, is suddenly taking over money management for a billionaire, that's virtually unheard of. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio. Written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard. Produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, and Chris Francescani. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Hallie Frager, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, and Caroline Highland. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is our Senior Executive Producer. <laughs>